Welcome to Confessions of an Obese Child. Let's cue up the techno. Hey everybody, this is A. Gregory Luna. Of course, you can call me Gregory. And welcome to another episode of Confessions of an Obese Child. Listen up. Thanks for listening to another episode. I appreciate it greatly. Before we begin on the dark night of the soul, I wanted to cover a couple of things, of course. You can find me at www.naturopathicearth.com naturopathicearth.com. If you have problems knowing how to spell that, just Google Confessions of an Obese Child and honestly, it'll pop up that way. You can find me on the social media at Naturopath Earth for Twitter and Facebook at Naturopath Earth. You can find me on Facebook at A. Gregory Luna. And you can find me on Instagram at naturopathic underscore earth, naturopathic underscore earth. Make sure you keep the ick. Keep the ick. So, today we're talking about a little more of a depressing topic today. We're on confession number 21, the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. I got this term from Mother Teresa. Uh, She passed away, it's probably about 20 years now, but she wrote a memoir, or I'm sorry, somebody wrote a, a biography about her, and in it she was interviewed, and she talked about that for about 10 years she didn't believe in God. She lost her faith. And this is coming from the paragon of Christianity, Mother Teresa, right? She worked with the untouchables in India, her and her sisters of mercy for 50 years. You know, we think of her as being holy up there with like the Dalai Lama, but I guess the Catholic version. She was originally from Albania. If you want a little beer trivia, Albanian Mother Teresa. But anyway, she talked about that for about 10 years. She lost her faith in God. She didn't believe in God. And she called it the dark night of the soul, the dark night of the soul. So she had what we would call spiritual aridity, like it's arid, it's dry. And a lot of people of faith go through this where you either question the existence of God because we are essentially in a post-Christian America, a post-modern, post-Christian America where Christianity, unless you put yourself in a cocoon, you cocoon yourself in a, in, a, in a bubble of Christianity like a lot of fundamental groups do, like the Mormons do, like Baptists do. Uh, you, we really do live in a secular society where, where Christianity is kind of either made fun of or looked down upon, like Jesus didn't exist or the Bible was written, you know, several hundred years later or they try to find holes in it. And so it's common to question your faith. And I don't think God hates us if we ever do question our faith, because what kind of God would he be if we, if he did hate us for questioning our faith? So the dark night of the soul. So this, this confession is about near the end of my obesity, what I dealt with. And I went to some very dark places, guys. 
And speaking of dark places, and this ties into this confession, I wanted to talk about the Netflix show 13 Reasons Why. Now, if any of you have watched this show, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It hit the... It's very popular. went viral about two months ago. It's about a teenage girl who kills herself. Uh, She's a high school girl. And the show is about the 13 reasons why she killed herself. And it really caused an uproar in high schools. Now, of course, as you know, I teach at high schools. So I teach at a high school. So I saw this up front and all the kids watched this show. And luckily I was covering sex ed. I have to cover sex ed. It's part of the district curriculum in one of the classes I teach. And it was perfect timing because if any of you watched that show, there's an incidence of date rape. There's an incidence of consent talking about what's, what is true consent uh, on that show. And of course she kills herself at the end, but we were able to use that to talk about some instances of, of what consent is. So we didn't really talk about this show per se, but I was able to, to, to talk about it with the kids. And uh, it's, it's fascinating their view of that show and, and just my own take of it. So if you haven't watched it, if you have high school children or tweens, I definitely recommend you watch this show because a lot of it is very accurate in that how kids communicate with each other, the use of social media, uh, the use of sexting, how that is how that is shown and the biggest takeaway is i was not a big fan of this show i definitely not to spoil it for you but but she does kill herself when i was watching the first a couple episodes i thought well you know maybe she's faked her death to get attention or something like that but no she does die she in the 13th episode she actually they show her slitting her wrist and they her parents find her and it's it's quite disturbing so If if you have teenage kids and you have Netflix, I pretty much guarantee you that they've already seen this show. And it's not a show that you want your teenagers to watch without you because there's a lot of incidents of rape in it and drug use and suicide. And if you have somebody who's already, maybe a child that's already kind of sensitive or prone to that, you definitely want to watch it because there, there have been news reports about people who are who've tried to kill themselves, who are in fact killed themselves since the show and done their own little 13 reasons why, where they record everything and give it to the people that they think caused it. But uh, I thought one of the, the most interesting things about it is that uh, the, the people that Hannah ascribes to causing her to kill herself, the parents all thought that these kids were good kids. Like, oh, you wouldn't be involved in that that suicide. Because at the end, they they are called to, to testify in an affidavit. And like, oh, don't worry, you know, Bobby, I, I, you're a good kid. You wouldn't do any of that. And so I just found it interesting the disconnect that parent these parents had uh, uh, with their kids, how they had no idea that these kids were going to these crazy parties and doing perhaps unscrupulous things. So I found that to be interesting. And I, I, and I listened to an NPR podcast about it afterwards, and they interviewed different social workers and psychologists. And one of the ideas that somebody can cause you to kill yourself is kind of a specious logic. And I think perhaps they use that on the show as a way to get people to watch it. But that was one of the other takeaways. Like no one can make you kill yourself because on the show, Hannah is a well-adjusted girl and then just a series of events that are all incremental. And most of them are very minor until the end. They build up to the point where she takes her life. Now, if she is not have a predilection to that or is susceptible to suicidal ideation, the experts are saying that this this likely is unrealistic. 
But the other criticism was that the Netflix didn't have any, you know, if you're having thought, thoughts of suicide, uh, contact the suicide hotline or anything like that. So it was kind of like, a, it was, to me, it was just a, uh, a ratings a ratings bonanza for them because, of course, tons of people watched it. And if you don't know, Netflix doesn't reveal their numbers, their Nielsen ratings numbers, how many people are watching their shows, unless it's convenient to them. But it's understood that a lot of people watch that show. And so they made a great amount of money and you know publicity from that show. And I just think it was a little irresponsible. I think the show was cleverly crafted and it was pretty well written and intriguing, but I just think it, it's definitely a show, guys, that you should not be watching if you're a tween. I was at the gym one day, and I was walking past a couch, and a girl was on it, and I swear she was nine, and she was watching 13 Reasons Why on her phone, and I was like shocked, and I thought, well, probably her mom told her just to sit here uh, while she worked out, you know, the, the, the why where I go has a kid area for kids that are for like a nursery for kids that are six and younger. Then they have like another area for the kids that are seven and older. And it has like a foosball table and ping pong table and video games. But I guess this girl didn't want to go to it. So I walked up to her and I said, excuse me, miss, I'm a teacher. And I noticed that you're watching 13 reasons why. And I think this is not a good show for you to be watching unsupervised. There's a lot of adult material. And I didn't want to specifically say, oh, there's, you know, date rape and, and rape and suicide and all these horrible things. But I just said, there's a lot of adult material on this and you really shouldn't be watching it. I really recommend that you don't watch it. And she just looked at me kind of confused because probably it's like stranger danger, right? But I thought I, by prefacing that I was a teacher, that that would kind of maybe abate that a little. But uh, she just kind of gave me a look and just kept watching it, you know, but a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old should not be watching that show. And so you think, well, I got a nine-year-old, my kid's not watching it. Yeah. Let me tell you, I had older brothers. And so I was stayed up late watching a bunch of stuff without my parents noting. I'm mean, noticing I was watching R-rated movies when I was very, very young. So kids are crafty. They know how to get around these things. So you need to put parental locks on, on all your computers and stuff. And I think we talked about in the five toxins in your house, I talked about routers and how toxic they are, but I mentioned there, it's like, there's really no reason to have your router on at night. And honestly, there's really no reason for your little kids to have phones. Honestly, there's no reason for your high school kids to have phones. Cell phones are a major epidemic right now, but don't be complacent and naive to think that your kids are not watching these shows that are inappropriate. And Netflix does have a lot of inappropriate shows that have sex in it too. Don't think it's all PG stuff. I know, I just wanted to preface that. So again, if you're an adult with a high schooler, definitely watch the show. I hate to give it more ratings, but it's an intriguing show and it's very revelatory. All right, Confession 21. By the time I reached my junior year in high school, I weighed approximately 280 pounds and boasted a size 54 waist. Now, I wore my pants. If I do have that one picture of me overweight because I think I mentioned in a previous podcast how I got rid of all the fat pictures because, again, when you're fat, you don't want to have pictures reminding you that you're fat. But I did wear my belt above my belly, whereas most people wear their belt underneath their belly, right? I didn't. That's one of the reasons I had a size 58 waist. I had my belt really high up at the belly button where your waist is supposed to be, right? My years of binge eating, both recreational and competitive, that's Confession 11 when I used to be a competitive eater, coupled by my lack of any modicum of physical activity, had led me to the point of being a morbidly obese child. My parents intervened as best as they knew how by sending me to dietitians, but to no avail. 
It didn't work. I hated myself for what I allowed myself to become. I hated myself for not stopping it sooner. I hated myself for not having the restraint and discipline to follow the dietitian's plan. And I hated myself mostly for loving the food more than myself. Now, any of you that have an addiction to anything, to drugs, to sex, to shopping, can relate to those sentences. You hated yourself mostly for loving the fill-in-blank more than you love yourself. Because anybody who has an addiction, who's aware of it, who's honest with their self, like step one of AA is acknowledging that you have the problem. And if you acknowledge you have the problem, you'd be honest with yourself with a little introspection and say, I love food more than I love myself because if I loved myself more, I'd try to control this. And so even though food was an outlet and escape, it was just a building avalanche of making me want to binge more later on. And I hated myself. There was so much loathing involved, self-loathing involved, in this, and it was just a cycle of, of hatred and shame. Despite the satisfaction I derived from beating people in pizza eating contests and knowing all the capitals of the countries in the world and having fulfilling relationships with random adults, I simply hated myself. The bleak view of the future. The final few years of my morbid obesity were psychologically taxing. By the time you're in high school, you are deftly aware of the opposite sex and your station in their life and your own. I mentioned already in the opposite sex that I never thought I'd ever be intimate with a woman. Why would they? I was unattractive. I smelled. You know, I've I've mentioned many times how I, I had a horrible odor emanating from my fat rolls and my mom tried to masquerade that. Uh, with <laughs> imitation cologne. And then, I, of course, I had rashes, so I'd use baby powder all the time. So I had this peculiar odor. Uh, not to mention, I didn't have the best facial grooming and I, bad breath and just, just all that. I contemplated a future of being alone with few friends, but with a lot of food to comfort me. So I, I just envisioned myself just kind of holding myself in a house. You've seen this, like, if you ever watch those shows with the morbidly obese people? And I, I don't have cable, so I don't watch it, but my students tell me about it. But, you know, the 600, 700-pound people who just are holed up in their, their bed, and they just order delivery food, and they just eat, 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 and television is their friend, and they just isolate themselves. That, that's what I saw. You know, I envisioned a future where I'd be the adults at the big and tall store, struggling to walk a few steps, without passing out due to my 500 to 600 pound girth. I mentioned in the Big and Tall story, which is Confession 14, how going as a child, I used to hate it, but it was the only place I could get clothes. But I would look at the adults and just notice the shame that they had. And of course, all the other teenagers that were there too, it was, just a, it was like a, an emporium of shame. I envisioned no other future than the present and the past with which I was accustomed I thought, I was fat, I would always be fat. If anything, my weight would burgeon exponentially, fueled by the aforementioned self-loathing. Why would I think any different? I mean, that, that I would stay fat. I mean, there was nothing in my history to suggest that I was going to lose this weight. 280 by the time I was 16. I detested my body. I never looked at that stinky baby powder laden fat rolls in the mirror. 
I couldn't even look at my own face when I brushed my teeth or combed my hair. I didn't want to be reminded of the hideous beast I had become. How could anyone ever possibly want to be near me, much less love me? As expected, the depression increased. I'd put a smiley face at school around my nerd friends to maintain the facade. I would chuckle when the popular kids ridiculed me and called me, hey, 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 it's Fat Albert, and all the poof, poof, poof. You know, they still did that in high school. I mentioned most of those, of the Fat Albert references in, in elementary school and all the confessions dealing with elementary school, but that didn't change in high school, too. They were definitely still doing it in high school. But internally, I was struggling wholeheartedly. At home, I would cry alone, listening to George Michael ballads and other sappy love songs. I had mentioned in previous confessions how I loved George Michael, and it was very sad when he died. He had some great ballads. One More Try, Kissing a Fool. God, he was so good. Praying for time. I would order more delivery pizzas, pay kids at school to give me their junk food, and ate and ate and ate. I began cutting my final year of obesity. On several occasions, I used my mom's steak knife to slice my upper arm. I had never done it before, and I honestly don't know how I even knew about it since cutting wasn't big back then. All I knew was that it felt good to do it. To get that temporary respite from the obesity shame to focus on another pain. No one ever found out about it. Even later in my skinny life when I resumed it again. So I had mentioned briefly or maybe obliquely in one of the previous confessions that I, I did cut. Now, I didn't do it for a long time. I do remember distinctly one night, and I remember doing it s- several times. So when I say I didn't do it a lot, I mean, I, I didn't do it like 300 times, but probably at least 20 times in my lifetime. And I do distinctly one night in my house just getting the steak knife. It was, it was nighttime. It was dark. I don't know why... You know how you have these just these flickers of memories? Kind of like how, how kids that have been molested kind of have these flickers of memories, but they don't have like the actual the memories, the actual kind of like solidified memories. But I, I do remember one time just being in my mom's kitchen or my, my family, my parents' kitchen, and just, I don't know what had happened, but I remember just grabbing the steak knife. It was a butcher knife. And just start just small little cuts. Now, most of the cuts I did were on the upper arm, but this, for whatever reason, this was on the forearm. And I remember just cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and just cutting and cutting and just, it felt good. I mean, I can understand now with self-mutilation being so popular now and cutting being so common, um, back in the early 90s, I mean, I mean, I'm sure people were doing it, but it just wasn't well known. But... It, it relieved the, the, the pain I had, just the constant shame and burden. Like I was letting everybody down, including myself. And all I knew was to binge. And I, there was just that hatred because that's all I knew and that's all, that's all I was going to continue to do. But when I would cut myself, I'd feel the searing cut of each, of each the searing burn of each cut, the pain of each cut. And it felt a little better. But of course, with the cutting, 
after you cut, it relieves a little of the anxiety, just like binging does. But then it comes back again. And then you feel bad about cutting. You're like, what am I doing? I'm cutting myself. That memory is after I lost my weight. And we're going to talk about this in later confessions, the post-weight loss dealing. Because it's not like sunshine and happiness immediately after you lose your weight. On some levels, it is. On some levels, it is. You're like, because you can wear clothes that you didn't wear before, and you might get more attention from friends in the opposite sex. But in a lot of ways, you're still the same person with all that hatred. And so it's, it's morphing that, turning that into something positive. It takes time. So there might be some of you who are listening who did lose weight and then you were happy. You never dealt with these issues and more power to you. And I'm very happy that you didn't have to go through that. But I did. I did. The dark night of the soul. I turned in my religion for succor or aid. I prayed fervently to Jesus, Mary, and the saints, anyone who would intercede on my behalf. Now, Catholics, we don't pray to Mary. We don't treat Mary as goddess. She's not a goddess. We revere her as the mother of God. We just give her a higher level of of respect. And in the Orthodox and Catholic worlds, we pray to the saints for intercession, just for them to pray on our behalf. Now, do we have to do that? Can we pray directly to God? Do we need an intercessor? We don't need an intercessor. But Paul mentioned in Corinthians that he exhorted other disciples to pray for him. So there's no harm in praying for people. We ask people to pray for each other all the time. And praying for the, the praying for the saints or the Virgin Mary, St. Mary to help you, is, is not a foreign concept in the ancient traditional Christian religions like Orthodoxy and Catholicism. But we don't pray to statues, okay? We're not idolaters. Statues are just like a picture just reminding us of that person. So we don't pray to a crucifix, We pray to Jesus, but we look at the crucifix because it reminds us of Jesus and what he did for us. But I prayed and prayed and I heard nothing. The faith that buoyed me through my adolescence turned quiet the moment I needed it the most. I entered a period of questioning my faith and even the the existence of God. It was my own dark night of the soul, a term which Mother Teresa used when she entered her period of spiritual aridity of 10 years when she questioned the existence of God. I heard nothing from the supernatural. All I heard was the food whispering to me to eat it as it echoed in the locked cabinet, which is Confession 8, where I talk about how food used to talk to me. I mean, not like in a schizophrenic way, like a, not like a like a big hamburger would walk in, like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters, eat me or feed me Seymour, like Little Shop of Horrors. It wasn't like that. It was just like, I would... I'd be wondering, I'd just be at school and I'd be daydreaming and I would just feel that the food was talking to itself and talking to me or I'd look at the, the drawer of the cabinet where the food was and, when are you going to eat me, Albert? You don't love me? You don't love us anymore? Yeah, like that kind of talking. It's not like crazy talking. Like a lot of us talk, talk to ourselves out loud. That's not crazy. Just, just people process things by talking out loud. As the binging accelerated, so did the thoughts of suicide. And honestly, why wouldn't I? If you've ever been morbidly obese or if you've ever had a normal upbringing, it might not even cross your mind. You have such a bright future. And maybe I did. Maybe I could be a world-famous doctor like my dad. But I didn't see that. You're so myopic in your distorted prism when you are suicidal. I only saw the future of a morbidly obese, constantly gawked at and derided and likely unemployed since who would want a smelly lard ass at their work? And going back to your, your distorted prism when you're suicidal, like if you think, of, again, going back to 13 reasons why, 
I mean, if you look at Hannah, she's got everything going for her parents. And this is one of the good things I liked about the show. The parents and most of the adults are depicted as being normal. Lots of times they depict adults as just being incompetent, just completely incompetent and buffoons. But in this show, the parents, all the parents, the parents of Hannah and the parents of the protagonist were all depicted pretty well. But, um, you look at her and she looks normal. Like she's got everything going for her. You wouldn't understand why she's suicidal. And, but in your mind, you see something that's completely different. A total piece of shit. That's all I thought about myself. The negative thinking snowballed day by day. I began to think that I would be doing my family a service by killing myself to spare them the ignominy of having a fat ass in their family. The shame. I wanted to kill myself. I contemplated different ways to do it, but frankly thought all oh, were too painful. And I don't, I don't know if other people who had suicidal ideation think about this, but hanging, stabbing, car wreck, those seemed uncomfortable. And I don't know how people stab themselves to death. I really, you know, like you think of Romeo and Juliet, or I guess Juliet was the one who did it. It seems like it'd be hard, or like King Saul in the Bible falling on your sword. Maybe falling on your sword would be easier. Because once you fall on it, it's kind of over. But getting like a dagger and stabbing yourself once or many times just seems so hard. Because right? you have that instinct for self-preservation. A car wreck would be, I guess, easy, right? Hanging. Yeah. We had no guns in the house, so the only option was pills. My father wrote my mother's prescriptions for her depression and anxiety meds. Chronicled in Why Did I Become Fat? Which is confession number one. That would be the easiest road. There came a time in September 1990 when I invaded her medicine cabinet when they were out for the night. My brothers were in college, and I was all alone. But I was a coward, and I couldn't do it. I wanted to end my life, yet I lacked the courage to do so. And of course, I hated myself for that as well. I thought, you're such a piece of shit, you can't even kill yourself. The binge eating and darkness continued. I told some of my friends about it, but it didn't seem to stir them. I maybe, I I don't remember now, like if I talked about suicide a lot with them or maybe on occasion, like with with my closest friend, Dave. Uh, But I do remember telling people about my attempt. And I I don't want to lie and glorify and exaggerate it that I was trying to kill myself all the time or make a light of it because, you know, you see a lot of celebrities write memoirs and talk about how they tried to kill themselves when they were younger. But there there was one occasion... I mean, it was, it was a lot of ideation, a lot of contemplation of doing it, but it was that one time where I actually had the pills in my hand and I poured them on the, on the table. It's like, I, think, I think it was like in the, the bathroom. It was at the bathroom sink table area. And I just looked at it and I just couldn't do it. Now, it could be partly because I had just learned to swallow pills. This was something that on a more, I guess, lighter moment, I couldn't swallow pills as a kid. I was just petrified that I would choke on them. And my dad would be like, Albert, you're useless. You're a piece of crap. You know, he, we, I talked about this, I think, in the Cancer Doctor podcast, which is 15. 
And he would just berate me, berate me, because I was like 16 and couldn't swallow pills. Just like I was 16 and I couldn't ride a bike without a, without the, the training wheels. And you can listen to that on the bicycle seat, which is eight. And so, of course, you know, there's other reasons why I hated myself, right? You can't ride a bike when you're 16 without training wheels. And so I think I think I just probably recently learned how to swallow pills. And the way the way they taught me, or the way I figured it out, was putting it in Jello. My mom was like, "Mijito, just put put, we'll put it in the Jello, and you just gulp down the Jello like you do uh, when you eat your Jello." And actually, that worked. But I think it was just more recent, or maybe I still thought that I was going to choke it. And either I didn't have the wherewithal to make Jello, or uh, I don't know. I, I just I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So no intervention from my parents or school. I didn't tell my parents about this. If they listened to the, well, my mother, if my dad's dead, of course. But if my mother listened to this, she wouldn't know about this. My brothers wouldn't either. I just continued my bleak high school experience day by day, contemplating if and when I'd have the courage to make another attempt at suicide. So that's where this confession ends. Confession number 21, the dark night of the soul. I don't like thinking about this, to be honest. I I don't really talk about it with people. I don't think any of my friends know about this. And it's something that you don't want to talk about. But luckily, with the years that have passed... I can talk about it now. And I don't think, aside from, you know, telling my friends I was thinking about doing it back in 1990, I don't think five, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would be able to talk about it. But I know that this series, this Confessions of Anobi Shah series is helping people because I've gotten feedback from it. And so I just, I just think with something like this, which is essentially a, an oral blog, um, self-help blog, I, so, I suppose, that I think I should just be completely honest and talk about exactly what I went through with the cutting and um, with the ideation and then with that one suicide attempt. So it, things were bleak, guys. And it, I know some of you who listened to this were overweight because you know I, you guys contact me and tell me that you listened to it and how you're, you were overweight and you lost it or you're still overweight. So I know, and I'm not saying that everybody who's morbidly overweight has tried to kill themselves. And by no means am I encouraging you to do so. Uh, please don't do it. Okay, please don't do it. All I'm saying is I could see, and I, looking back at, at myself back when I was that age, I could see why I was in that, that distorted prism, that view of why killing myself would benefit people because I was just getting fatter and I was never going to have a life. I was never going to have any intimacy so what's like what's like in your in your view especially when you're 16 17 and you're, you think like what's the point of living you know i'm gonna have that social stigma of being overweight of having to have specially fitted cars and specially fitted beds and and not having a lot of friends and just your family being ashamed of you and you just hating yourself Lynn. so you could see why people think that you can see why people have suicidal ideation but by the grace of God, I did lose my weight, which will be the next podcast of how I lost it. But things were bleak. And honestly, even though I didn't hear anything back from God, it was only by His grace, by His providence, that I didn't have a successful attempt. And then I was able to lose the weight. And there are a lot of people who don't have that recourse, who 
did take their lives or never lost their weight. And of course, I'm very grateful for that. And I've mentioned in previous podcasts on survivor's guilt. You know, even today, 25 years later, every time I see somebody who's morbidly overweight, I, I, I look at them and I just still, I still think, you know, why me? Why me? Why did I get to lose it and keep it off? Most importantly, keep it off and not this person. Why did God come down and touch me? And why not this person? It's not because I prayed more. It's not because I was a good person or I went to mass every week. I, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. But at the time, I was having such spiritual despair. I, I was losing my faith. But I guess maybe like Job, you know, you have to lose everything before you get it back. I, 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 don't, I really don't know. I, I, I really don't know. But he did listen to my prayers the atheist would say, you know, there's no such thing as God. And it just, you happen to just to work harder or, you know, we talked about coach Webster in this next podcast and you got lucky or I, I don't know what it is, but they would say that God had nothing to do with it at all. You know, it, that's the funny thing about God is like when good things happen to you, they go, oh, God bless me. Like the prosperity gospel kind of belief. And then when bad things happen, you're like, well, that's what God wanted. It's like we have a reason or rationale to believe both things when it comes to a God. When good things happen, it was what God wanted. When bad things happen, uh, that's what God wanted. It's a divine, God's a divine will. And I've mentioned this analogy. He is the, the parent and we are the four-year-old who needs to get the vaccine, which of course is a bad example because I'm not a big fan of vaccination. But the four-year-old doesn't understand vaccination. You can't teach them the concept of, of vaccination to them. So they just have to have faith. And, and the parents. And so it's kind of the same thing. We pray to God and we ask God for stuff. We ask God to save our child from cancer or, or even if it's something more shallow, like a new car or a new house. And when we don't get that, we, we get angry at God, but God sometimes knows best. But the atheist would say, there is no God and you're just rationalizing and making stuff up. The Theists would say that atheism is their religion. It's like we are wired to believe in a higher being. And when you refuse to believe in a higher being, you fill that with another quasi-religion. And that could be veganism, clean eating, atheism, yoga, you know, Buddhism. It's like you have to fill that void with something. But I've talked about this when we talked about um, the, I think it was in the, the cancer hospital one where I, I delve into religion. But that's all I have today for confession number 21. In about a week or so, I'll post confession number 22, how I lost my weight. The written version of it is on my website. Just saying so you know, after confession number 22, when I talk about my thinner, my thinner days, those are all going to be just podcasts. I'm not going to write those out anymore. They're just going to be podcasts. And hopefully, by the grace of God and by providence, I'll be able to interview other people and I have people lined up. And I know I've been saying that since like Confession 5, which was back in March. But yeah, yeah I'm not that smart when it comes to this IT stuff. But until then... Uh, please send me your comments. I'd love to hear from you if any of you experience what I've talked about in this. Post a review, but really, uh, the reviews are great, but more importantly, like if you know anybody who's going through this, and I, I keep track of my listeners, I know exactly how many people listen to this podcast. Please, forward this podcast 
to people that you know that are struggling with this, that are overweight or were overweight children or overweight child, for this to them. I'm not saying this because I somehow get paid by the amount of people that listen to this show. If you go to my website, I have no paid advertising in it. Uh, Kate and I are not selling anything. It's just something like an outlet for for me to talk about my experiences. So please forward this to people because it might help more people than it's already helping. So until next time, God bless and take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Confessions of an Obese Child. Make sure to visit us at www.naturopathicearth.com for additional confessions, wellness articles, recipes, and a whole lot more. Leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Naturopath Earth. See you next time.